Many years ago, I wrote this book, Pure Sex, and it's only at a men's conference that you can buy it, you know, and even then, you should have a brown cover kind of bag to put it in or something. Yeah. Sitting, in the, sitting in the train wearing, reading that is just... I mean, it doesn't say impure sex. If it said impure sex, you could read it, but, you know, pure sex seems really... Um, uh, one of the good things, well, I didn't write it. Tony Payne writes my books and all these ones, and I just gave the ideas, and Tony produces brilliant books. Uh, one of the most important chapters of it is the history of sex. You wouldn't have thought that there's a history to have. You would have thought it's the same ever since Adam. But no, to understand the problems we're in as a society today, you need to understand what unbelieving degenerate minds have been doing for the last hundred years. Because there's a huge history to what has happened that brought about the sexual evolution of the 1960s for which we are now suffering in the 2000s. Uh, and we are suffering the result of their terrible mistakes. Um, uh, this series of little essays, there's two books of essays there. Uh, I read John Piper, he has books like these, and uh, Helen and I at breakfast time would read just one of these chapters. And so the model, that's where I got the model from, in a sense, it's, there's just two or three pages. It's the kind of thing, you know, you sit down and you read together on a Saturday morning and it gives you a discussion on all kinds of things. It was what I was thinking this week, essays, which I wrote every week for 10 years. And so here's the object of worship, uh, not Christmas at Easter, celebrating victory, time for games, a drought of God's word, thanking God for the rain, living gracefully, uh, what to do we do in church, uh, real repentance. It, uh, you never know what's going to come up next. Right? It's that kind of essays. But they're just a thousand words and gives you a topic to talk about. And uh, we found it useful reading the John Piper stuff. We had terrific discussions. And I was writing these things anyway, and the publisher said, well, why don't we produce those? So there they are, and I'd encourage you to it. The outline is on page five and six for this talk that we have now. Okay? Now, marriage is in terrible conflict in our society. Our society's got all kinds of problems today that previous generations didn't have in the same way. In fact, fewer and fewer people are getting married as de facto marriages, just people living together, is becoming the norm. In fact, living together before you get legally married is becoming a pattern for people. Uh, the majority of people now live together before they get married. Previous generation, that was not the case. Uh, that was much, uh, much less the case. But now even members of the royal family will do that. Uh, it's such an acceptable form of life. And those who live together uh, separate and hurt each other much more than those who get married first and then live together, which is the pattern that uh, I would still encourage. Because, and people now get married when they're going to have children. So they'll live together with several partners in their 20s and then when they've settled down with someone that they want to have children, then they, in their early 30s, get married. And it's, it's been quite interesting because in my generation, uh, I was born right at the end of uh, the Second World War, just before it ended, uh, people married men at 21, women at 19. Today they married at 31 and, and, and 29. 
Christians in those days used to marry in our mid-twenties, which was considered to be terribly conservative, but we weren't marrying out of the lust of passion. We were considered in what we were doing. Today, Christians marry in their mid-twenties and it's considered to be very young and rash. Uh, we haven't changed, but society's completely changed around about us. I don't know when you married and whatever age you married, I'm happy for you. So the rise of divorce, you see, in the 1970s, 75, we brought in a new marriage act, which really was a new divorce act, where no-fault divorce was brought into our society, which changed the nature of marriage completely. It, it takes 30 years for the change to become apparent, but the logic of the change was right there in the beginning. Because now I go into church and I say, I will live with you for better, for worse, for richer or poorer, until death us do part. But according to the law, what I'm really saying, and I will live with you and no one else till death, what I'm really saying when I go to, to the law court is effectively I was saying, I'll live with you, and I won't live with anybody else as my wife until I've stopped living with you for 12 months. The words I'm saying, the contract I'm making, bear no relationship to the legal reality of what I'm talking about. You can't buy a car that way. You can't buy a house that way. You can't have any contract, anyone with anywhere that way. The words you sign, you're going to be held to but not marriage. What you say in a wedding is a complete irrelevance to the reality of the marriage that you're in. Now, it took 30 years for that to have its effect that people said, well, what's the point of getting married? And I can understand what they're saying. Although the idea of the wedding is still captures people's imagination this weekend. <laughs> People look at Republicans are enjoying watching a royal wedding. I mean, it's ridiculous. Right? And of course, the homosexual community, desperate to be allowed to get married, even though I'm sure you'll find in the coming days very few of them do. But desperate to do. And so our society is in great confusion about what marriage is, how to conduct married life, how to conduct family life. And more and more people are being born into divorced and separated homes and I'm sure there are some that will be amongst us here and of course that then gives us no model as to how to conduct our life and when you grow up with mum and dad separated it has profound psychological effects upon you there are some times when it has to happen but they're very very rare but even the really so-called good divorces where everyone's civilised and nice to each other, it still wrecks children. Because you see, I am the combination of my mother and father. But my mother and father are no longer combined. So who am I? It goes right to the very deep depth of my psychological being that the people whose love created me doesn't, exist anymore because their love doesn't exist anymore and so I am not there's a dreadful thing to do to your children is to separate from your spouse it's a dreadful thing to do the only thing worse is to commit adultery and separate from your spouse so we have these all these symptoms of difficulty in married life today but I want to raise to you first We've got to understand the wider issues that are involved 
the, the wider issues of right and wrong, of values, of where do we get our values from, where do we get our virtue from. Where, you see, is childbearing universal? Is it every society always, in one sense, it is a universal. Men and women having children goes back in every tribe, every language, every people groups that you have around the world. But yet, the way we learn how to conduct life is by and large learnt by osmosis, uh, is learnt from just mum and dad, what they did. That's, I've got to admit, that's how I learnt about it. Uh, th there's so many intuitive things you don't even think about. So my wife and I, we, we fought over the last couple of years of marriage because in her family, her father fixed things. In my family, my mother fixed things. So in our marriage, I was waiting for her to fix things. She was waiting for me to fix things. Nothing was getting fixed. <laughs> but nobody ever said, it's the man's role to fix things. It's the women's role. We didn't have that in the wedding contract. right? It just... We had two families from two cultures that were different and nothing got fixed until I resolved the problem, which I did. I rang up my father-in-law and got him to come over and fix things. <laughs> he loved doing it. He was a handyman. It just gave him great joy and all the more joy that he was able to make fun of me while he was fixing things for me and I liked it. I didn't care if he was making fun of me. I was getting cheap labour. So... <laughs> You learn just that. It's not taught to you. It's just kind of modelled to you. Oh, my brothers, what are you doing to your children? Because <laughs> you're doing it right now, those of you who have children. And it's in everything that you're doing. They're watching every, everything that you do, every word they are just picking up, and they're not doing it consciously. That's even more dangerous, isn't it? It just is soaked into their system. Now, atheistic lifestyle and philosophy has dominated our Western society. There are very few atheists in Australia. 10% would be as many as there are. 30% non-religious, but non-religious is not the same as atheist. The atheists are very few, but the atheists control the universities, they control the media, they control the politicians, they control our society, and atheism is amoral. It doesn't believe, it's got no right and wrong. And because it's got no right and wrong, there's no way that you can actually condemn anything particularly. Atheism is nonsense because there is right and wrong, and so they're always in contradiction to themselves. But Lord Denning was a, a jurisprudence, uh, he was a law lord from England. Uh, he died in 1999 at the age of 100. Uh, he was the chief lawyer, the master of the roles is the title, the chief lawyer for working at the philosophy of law. And he said, without religion, there can be no morality. And without morality, there can be no law. And if religion perishes in the land, truth and justice will also. And that's Australia. That's where we're at. Let me give you a dream. Here's the atheist dream. I call it a nightmare. Without God, there's no meaning. Without meaning, there's no morality. Without morality, there's no justice. Without justice, there's just culture and power. 
Justice then becomes social engineering and all government is tyranny. That's the direction Australia is moving steadily. Social engineering is what we're doing all the time. Changing the structures in order to have good improvements out the end. But we don't know what the good is, so we don't know whether it's going to improve or not. And by and large, it's not. And it's all about power. Not about right, about power. One of the big things that has hit us in this regard, then, is feminism. Because feminism is all about power, shifting the power balance away from men to women. It has got no evidence that's going to make anything better, but it has consist it has considerably changed the ways in which we live. The time work time pressure that comes from having two incomes instead of one income in a household, two careers instead of one career in a household. It's happened. It's everywhere. You know, this is just the society we're in now. But as a result of it, there's less sex because you've got two tired adults instead of one tired adult. As a result, he's got less time for it. He's got less time for children. In fact, what you've got are fewer children. And what also you get is houses we can't afford to buy. They're all the consequences of this power shift. They're not the consequences people aimed for, meant or intended, but they are the consequences that come from it. But we're in a society, it's not your choice, it's the society's choice, made because we didn't know what we were doing, basically. But feminism, which rightly sees the oppression of women and needs to stop, and we'll talk about that in a few moments, but has got the wrong diagnosis because they think it's all about power when it's all about sin. If you've got the wrong diagnosis, you'll give the wrong medicines and get the wrong results. And that's what we're seeing. So let's come back to the right diagnosis and look at the Bible. Jesus talks about marriage in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Let's go there. Matthew 19. Taken too long on my introduction. So let's move. Matthew 19, verses 1 to 9. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea on the other side of Jordan. Large crowds followed him and some of the Pharisees came to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any kind and any reason? Haven't you already replied that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and he said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now I won't go down the divorce side and the rest of his subject, but notice when Jesus wants to understand marriage, his understanding of marriage is Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. That's where it comes from. So if that's Jesus' understanding, let's go back to Genesis 1. Back to Genesis 1. Because marriage is part of the very fabric of our creation, of our being, of our existence. And therefore it's universal. It's not a Christian activity. It's humanity's activity. It's for all humans. But it's, it's, it's not nature. It's creation. God made them this way and therefore it is God's word that tells us what it's about 
It, it's not just a natural thing. It's natural in the sense that it's universal. But to understand it, you need to know what God, the Creator, was doing. And so that's why we turn to His Word to find out what's taking place. Genesis 1 tells us about the creation of the world and the way in which God fashioned the world that He had created. And He fashions us in chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that are moved on the ground. Verse 27, so God created man or humanity or mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God created man, male and female. And he created man, male and female, so that we would rule the world. See, I'm a racist. And I hope you're racist too. I want everybody to be racist. It's really important that you are. Um, uh, you've got to stop this nonsense of anti-racism that is taking place all around about us. It's really important that you are clearly racist. That is, I absolutely committed to the human race. Because there is only one race, the human race. That's the only race that is around. There's all kinds of ethnicities and languages and cultures, but there's just the human race. And the human race is different to any of the animals. Whereas people are trying to make them all the same now. And they talk about the human animal. When No, no. We are different because we are made in the image of God. Male and female to rule over the world. And in that ruling over the world, male and female, he made us that way so that we would be fruitful and increase in numbers. That is, it is binary that is our human creation. Gender is not a cultural construct. Gender is a natural creation. You are a male or you are a female and it is actually biological that you are. Now, how you live out your masculinity and how you live out your femininity is affected by culture but is not determined by culture. Men are larger than women. I know there are some men who are smaller than some women. But the generalisation is true, men are larger than women. It is true, women are better at language than men, um, better at the emotional intelligence than men. Better, men are better at maths than women. Men are better at sport than women. I mean, there's differences that are generally true because they are physiologically, biologically true. And the idea that our gender is purely a cultural construct is a complete nonsense. It's fantasy land. God has created. Now, what about transgender? Well, the, it is a sad consequence of the fall that some people in their birth and in their creation are not made in the pattern in which they were to be made by God in the first place. That's a terrible tragedy. Uh, there are terrible tragedies in 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 babies not being fully formed one way or another and we've got to be very sympathetic but the transgenderism which is just psychological you know I'm unsure I feel like a woman 
Well, you may feel like a woman, you may feel like a cactus. doesn't make you one. Right? You are what you are. The commission that God gives is to be fruitful, to, to increase, multiply and fill the earth and to rule over the world. That is, in our creation, humanity, for we're all one, humanity is one reproductively expanding uh, human race. The way in which we are to expand and fill the earth is through sex and reproduction. And that's why we're made male and female. God could have created millions of humans. He didn't. He created one humanity. But that one humanity was male and female in order that it could reproduce and increase and fill the earth. So built into our very being under the creation of God is our sexuality um, and our sexuality for the purpose of reproduction. And so marriage is about having kids. That's what it's about in the first place. That being the case, it doesn't mean every marriage has children. Though those marriages that can't have children are some of the most painful of all. It's really hard. It's really, really difficult, brothers. Especially for the woman who would like to have children is unable. That is one of the most greatest pains that anyone endures and needs all the encouragement and sympathy and help that we can give to them. It's part of the fall. More of that in a moment. But our creation and our marriage is about having children. That's what it's about. But in Genesis chapter 2, that marriage is teased out more. You know, you read art books, they show you the big picture, and then you turn the page and they show you a detail, one little bit that's blown up so that you can actually look very carefully. I can see some of you don't look at art books, okay. You know when you're watching the rugby and they, 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 they show you the try and then another video camera comes in and shows you really close up and sometimes they show it, especially when it's disputed as to whether the line's been put down or not, they show it from our five different angles and you actually see the man's hand on the ball dropping it if he's a Waratah. Um, <laughs> well, Genesis 2 gives you the detail of what Genesis 1 was the big picture. And in Genesis 2, you see... Verse 18 of chapter 2, the Lord God took the man, well, 15, 18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Suitable helper in what way? And then he creates the animals and none of them are suitable helpers. Verse, uh, second half of verse 20, but for Adam no suitable helper was found, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made the woman for the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And they become one flesh. Adam and Eve, wife were both naked and they felt no shame. How does she help him? He's the gardener. So God says, well, the garden's too big to be looked after. I'll make another gardener for you. No, she's not, she's not there to be the gardener. She's there to be the, the helper for him. In what? In life? Well, maybe. But, and I'm sure there's nothing wrong with her doing some gardening. But no, no, it's in reproduction. It's in sex. 
It's in reproduction. It's in family life. We are to rule over the world and to fill the world. The wife is created for that which none of the animals could do with him. You can have animals help your garden, but you can't have animals help you having children. Here is the distinctive thing. She comes from the man, bone of my bones, and united to the man. So they cleave together, as the old language had it. They are united and they go on uniting themselves. Marriage is part of the generational expansion of the world, but marriage is part of human unity. For God did not want many humanities, but one humanity that he was making for his son. And so our unity with our wife is a fundamental expression and part of our humanity. And the diversity, husband and wife, so that we can have children is part of it too. And you'll see there that the generalisation of what we're saying here comes true in verse 24. That's why a man leaves his father and mother because Adam and Eve didn't have father or mother to leave. But the cleaving together, what they are doing is the model for everybody else. Now, to show it to you again, go across to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, if that helps you find it. Minor prophets are always hard to find when preachers call out them and you look them up and by the time you get there, mind you, some of you are using telephones and you think you'll get there faster, but I've noticed that Bible flippers generally get there faster than telephone users. Um, especially you've got big old arthritic clumsy fingers like me and you're not... Anyway, Matthew, you got there? Malachi 2. Well, that was just rabbiting on so as to give you time to find Malachi 2. Because in verses 13 to 16, another thing you do, he says... You flood the Lord's altar with tears, you weep and wail because he no longer looks with favour on your offerings and accepts them with pleasure for your hands. And you ask, why? It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord God, has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. What does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Very little important little passage on marriage, that one. Most of you know Genesis 1 and 2. Do more study on Malachi 2. It's a really important one. The one God has made us one. And why has he made us, male and female, and married us the way we have, with a covenant, a contract that we've got? Why? Because he wants offspring. And not just offspring, godly offspring. And so to separate, to, to be unfaithful to your marriage contract, why that is to be violent. Divorce is domestic violence. There are other forms of domestic violence, but divorce is domestic violence that the atheist will never acknowledge because they're all getting divorced. They won't do that. Their concept of violence is, is purely the physical consequence. Well, that's a really bad one. We'll talk more of it. But the divorce is also violent, ripping apart that which God has united your companion for youth. 
How does it happen? Well, it's all got to do with the reversals. Point five on the outline, if you wonder where we're up to. The reversals of the fall, which means we've got to go back to Genesis again. Fortunately, it's right at the beginning of the Bible, and even the novices can find it. Genesis 3 uh, is a passage of the Scriptures that we know well, I take it. But let me show you what it's about. And I read from verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God did say you mustn't eat of the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it... Uh, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit was of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both them were opened and they realised that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the animals. You will crawl on the belly and you will eat dust the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will turn. And we will leave it there for a moment. Now, notice the reversals that are there. See, God created the man and then the animals, but they couldn't fit into being suitable helper, so the woman and the animals were to rule over. But temptation comes from the animal to the woman, to the man. When God approaches the, the, the humans in the garden, he speaks to the man who points to the woman, who points to the animal. And so God condemns the animal and then the woman and then the man. The ordering is important and the reversals that are taking place here are important because the whole nature of the temptation and the sin is rebellion. Is not accepting my place in this world, but usurping my place in the world. See, what is it they eat? It's not an apple, and it's not sex. Right? They were quite happy having sex beforehand. 
in chapter 2. No, no. It's the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which as a title is, excuse the old pun, a mouthful. And so that's why we talk apple, right? Because it's easier to say. But it's a great error to say it because it's really important, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because in eating that, they were to become like God. Now the problem with that, of course, is they already were like God. God made them like him in his image and likeness. What the serpent is saying is, well, you're not really like God because <laughs> you can't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But if you eat that, then you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. Now, they knew what was good and they knew what was evil. What was good was to eat everything and what was evil was to eat this tree. In what way does God know good and evil? Well, he knows it because he determines it. And that's fundamentally different. And so the serpent is saying, if you eat of this tree, you will be like God, determining what's good and evil. They're not so much lawbreakers as lawmakers. <laughs> They're becoming outlaws. They're putting themselves outside the law rather than just breaking the law. I'm going to determine what I'm going to do with my life. It's not for you to tell me what to do with my life. I am the master of my own destiny and the captain of my own soul. Or to put it in Frankie Sinatra's terms, I'm going to do it my way. I have some ups, have some downs, good times, bad times, but what makes it right is it was my way. That is the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That song is the epitome of sin. And in RSL clubs around Australia, it's the most asked after song. It's the favourite. Uh, whole generations were raised on doing it my way, which is sin. Because you're not doing it God's way. Of course, the devil is a liar. What he's saying is, you will be the ruler of your own life instead of God. But of course, once they eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they become the slaves of the devil. Instead of being the free creatures of God, they become the servants and slaves of the one they followed, namely the devil. It's, it's a great con that he is engaged in, in this activity. See, the actual wording, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is a very important wording that what they're involved in, and becoming like God. And it worked. Now, I don't want to tell you how to tell lies, brothers, but the best lies are covered with truth. Right? I mean, please, don't tell lies. But if you're going to, cover them with truth. Because <laughs> the more truth that's around them, the more they'll be swallowed. And the devil's lie was true. Uh, look down to verse 22 of chapter 3. Verse 22. And the Lord God said... The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. It actually worked in the worst possible way because we're not God and we make all the wrong goods evil and all the wrong evils good. And we get it all wrong. So God approaches the man because the man is the responsible one. He was created first. He was given the command. So you'll find in 1 Timothy 2, this is being discussed by Paul as an illustration about women teaching and preaching. Man was created first. 
And the sin of the woman was she was deceived. The sin of the man was he listened to his wife. Nearly every marriage counselling book tells you you should listen to your wife more. But the sin of Adam was he did. Uh, the word listen means not, uh, it means hearken, obey. It's, it's more than just hearing what she said. He did what she said. But God addresses the man, because he's the responsible one, and the man does what all cowardly, stupid men have done ever since. He said, the woman, it's not me, right? the woman that you gave me. Right? So it's nothing to do with me, it's not my fault, is it? It's her fault, it's your fault. If you hadn't given me that woman, I wouldn't be in the situation I'm in now. It's got nothing to do with me. It's the double kind of rationalisation that goes on with at that point. God turns to the woman and he doesn't accept the man's thing, but he turns to the woman and says, what have you done? And she said, the serpent. So he turns to the serpent and says, all right, you will now be in permanent conflict with the woman. But in the end, her seed, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, is the first reference to the gospel really, her seed will crush you. Mind you, you'll strike him, which is a reference to the cross. Then turns to the woman and says, okay, you've been created for the joy of mothering, the love of husband, to be the suitable helper in married life. And so pain comes into you there. Now, it's not just the pain of the confinement, which is awful pain. It's the pain of the whole of her life about reproduction. Every hospital has an obstetric and gynaecology ward. Hardly any hospitals have androcology wards. You don't have men's medicine as a specialty, like you have women's medicine as a specialty, because gynaecologically, women have got many more problems than men. Monthly, the pain of cycles, which for some women is totally crippling. The whole problem of going through menopause. For men, we just get older and lose it. But women, it's not just getting older and lose it. It really is a painful process they go through as the change of life that happens upon them. The, the, the pain. I spoke to a young mother the other day. It was so sad. As a result of her two children, Contract consequence of having two children. She has, she has got permanent now um, damage to her body. She's in pain most days. Lovely Christian woman, she said, but each time I see those little ones, I thank God for the blessing. <laughs> but she lives in pain for the rest of her life because she's had two children. No man lives in pain <laughs> because of having... It's, it's a broader thing than just confinement. Right? The very thing that brings her greatest joy and her meaning in life, the having of her children with her husband now becomes painful. And she's in constant conflict with her husband. You, know, you will desire him and he will master you. It's the character of conflict that happens now. And men, we get condemned in our work. No longer is gardening a pleasure. Now going to work... You know, it's going to work. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah, we shouldn't at this point say, okay, well then that's the way it's going to be. There's nothing wrong with us making our work more enjoyable and there's nothing wrong with helping our sisters with medicine and good, good pain relief and things like that. In fact, there's every reason to do it. But life will never ultimately change in this regard. 
We will ease the pains of childbirth. We will ease the pains of working and make working conditions better. But in the end, work is a meaningless hard thing that we have to endure. <laughs> and there'll be days you don't want to go. And when you retire, no one will pay any attention. It'll as if you never got there. Uh, you, you know, they always say when you retire, oh, well, come back and see us. But if you ever do, they haven't got time for you. It, it's imaginary, really. Right? I mean, the human, the HR department tell you how important you are, but as soon as they're downturning the market, they'll sack you. You know, it really, life is not what it pretends to be. And so we never will solve the problem. But for our purpose here, the, the men's work is now difficult, the women's work is now difficult, and the relationship between the two is permanently in conflict, which is our last point there. It's the sad that the greatest natural joy becomes the scene of the most bitter enmity. Best things and worst things happen in your home. The thing that will make you happiest will also make you unhappiest. The joy the day you bring a little daughter home from hospital, the horror of raising a teenage girl. Nobody will ever hurt you quite as effectively <laughs> as a teenager. I can see which ones of you have got sisters or teenage girls in your family. The husband and wife are now in conflict. Men become into faithless adultery and exercise violence against the vulnerable. For the women are now really vulnerable. Whatever difference there were beforehand, it's exacerbated now because she is in vulnerability through childbirth. And we, we have the capacity for doing terrible violence to them. And so the conflict is set up in such a way that women will always lose. awful image by the end of it. I mean, the, the wonderful bits of Genesis 1 and 2 turn into an awful Genesis 3. 